Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we may not be running the numbers in the exact kind of spreadsheet you want. And if you're here looking for an accountant, well, it's not the place, okay? If you want an exact accounting of every word in this book, maybe read it yourself. But if you want maybe a version with an actor's flair, well, you've come to the right place. We're not actors, but we do love to yammer. And I hope you like it. And if you like it so much that you want to come see us live, we are coming to your city and we are so excited to be there. Chicago and Minneapolis on deck ASAP in the next few weeks. And then we're coming to Atlanta, Nashville, Philly, D.C., Denver, San Francisco, and more to be announced soon. Yeah, if you live near us, there may be a show, a ho-ho-ho show. A show-ho-ho. Coming to you soon, and we can't wait to do it. Also, if you are in the D.C. area and you're like, but our tickets sold out, why are they still promoting it? We did move to a bigger venue so that we could have even more worms come celebrate. Get your tickets quick. They sold out very fast. I'm sure they'll sell out again. We're so freaking excited to meet you guys. We love you more than anything. Yeah, we booked all of our travel so far in advance. And by that, I mean already. (laughs) If one episode a week is not enough, baby, we have an extra episode every single Thursday on our Patreon. And that is where we're going to yammer for hours and hours about all the latest happenings in pop culture, what's on TV, our lives. When you sign up for our Patreon, you get access to every episode we've ever recorded for Patreon. We have been recapping and just like that this whole summer, and it has been painful, but still a really fun time. Now that it's over, we're going to have our spelling September. I don't know where we're going to find it, but we're going to be talking about Tori's spelling. We also did an in-depth conversation about Bethany's coverage on Scandaval when she interviewed Raquel. There's a lot in there. We did a recap of Claire's Bachelorette. We talked about Jenny Mullen's kooky little Instagram post. Come to our Patreon because, baby, that's where the conversation's happening. The link is in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com slash celebrity memoir book club. And as always, we have fresh new merch out. And by fresh new merch, I mean we did recaps of the old merch, which you should get now. But if you're looking for something new and fresh, we will have fresh new fall merch soon, which is very hard to say, kind of a tongue twister. And then also, we are going to have tour-only merch. So if you come out to the tours, we'll have a little something special on the horizon for you. A little something cozy. For your toesies. Not to spoil anything. Anyway, Claire, if you were a memoirist writing a book about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? I would title it, Too Much Fun Could Kill You. (laughs) I know I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm built different. I'm built worse. (laughs) I didn't even not sleep. I just had my bachelorette last week and that's when we're recording this. It's the first episode back since my bachelorette. And I had so much fun. It was a dream weekend. If you're interested in the details, we talked about it on the Patreon the weekend after on that episode, we didn't even go particularly hard. Like we went hard for me. We went out one night and danced till two, which for me is cuckoo bananas. And I think I had six drinks over the course of eight hours, which is so crazy for a girl like me. I woke up on Tuesday physically unable to speak. If I had woken up yesterday sounding like this, I would have been like, oh, we pushed through and we record just like I'm recording now. Yesterday I woke up and I couldn't get the sound to come out of my lungs. I didn't understand what it was. I was like looking at blaringitis. I was like, is this a new strain of COVID? Because I was fine all weekend. And then even Monday, I had a bunch of wedding prep stuff and I had my final dress fittings and I was like cruising along. And then at about 6 p.m. Monday, I was like, I'm having a hard time being loud, which is my default. (laughs) So by being loud, I mean, I was having a hard time speaking, which to me is yelling. And I was doing what I would call whispering, which I think to many people is just talking. (laughs) (laughs) And then by the time I woke up, I couldn't even say hello. I was like muted 
And it felt very Little Mermaid-esque. Someone had stolen your voice. It really was. Like, my body was like, this girl has gotten less than eight hours of sleep four nights in a (laughs) row. We need to shut her down. And they're like, no matter what we do to her body, she won't shut up. And they said, we've got it. Cut her where it hurts. Take her voice. And then this morning I woke up and it was like fully restored. I mean, I don't sound great, but I will be talking for the next two hours. No problem. Yeah. I really feel like my body went to panic mode and like hit some kind of panic button where they're like the only way to slow her down is to make it so that she physically couldn't even speak even if she wanted to. Like it wasn't even a pain tolerance thing. It was just I couldn't get the air to come out right. And I have to say, I wonder what it was like for Mac dating himself. (laughs) (laughs) I was like tapping him on the shoulders and like looking in ways. And I had to ask my dad about a couple stuff for the weddings. And I was like, I would call you, but I can't. (laughs) Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity, what would you call last week's memoir? I guess I would call it maybe one less step at a time. I'm in a glow up right now. I'm working on glowing up and I've been taking kind of hard workout classes and I need to take it down a notch. I can't move right now. I can't even remember what I did last week. I took two workout classes this week. It's Wednesday. That's like a pretty regular pace to do like two and I can't move. (laughs) I can't believe you can't move and I can't talk. We've really (laughs) outdone ourselves what with the bare minimum. (laughs) I went out one night in an entire summer and you did two workout classes and we're like, hold the phone. Enough is enough. Our bodies can't take this. What are we, Navy SEALs? <laughs> we kept on talking about how last Friday was like the busiest day of our lives. We did three things. And one <laughs> of those things was sitting on a hot bus for four hours. <laughs> we're not equipped. <laughs> I will say, ironically, we were so worried about catching the bus in time. And if we had missed that bus, we actually would have gotten there sooner because we had a mutiny on the bus. We'll talk about it on the Patreon about my bachelorette, but... Was I or was I not a bus hero? Claire moved an entire bus <laughs> from... With just diplomacy. In New Jersey to further into New Jersey. <laughs> it was incredible stuff with her mind, like a Marvel character. With my ability to chat, I yapped us home. Speaking of Marvel characters, should we dive into We Were Dreamers by Simu Liu? Uh, yes. Are you a dreamer? Well, not in the literal sense, in that I don't have dreams. Did you know that about me? Me and my ex used to get into fights over it. You don't have dreams? I don't remember them. I've never remembered my dreams. I didn't know that about you. Every now and then, like once a year, I'll have a dream that I remember, and usually it's about me like falling off a cliff. I wonder if that means you're getting really deep sleep or like no sleep at all. I think both at once. (laughs) Anyway, well, you know who is a dreamer? Simu Liu. An Immigrant Superhero Origin Story. So, Simu Liu, if you don't know, it was recently a Marvel character. And I will say, it was actually a Marvel movie I saw, my boyfriend just told me. (laughs) I can't remember what it was called. I know Aquafina was in it, and I know that during the great battle scene, I fell asleep. (laughs) And I think at the beginning, he's a valet. But I watched the trailer for it when we were reading this book, and I thought, I would like that movie, I think. It was pretty good, I think. I think I enjoyed it. (laughs) Battle scenes do nothing for me, generally. That's how I felt watching Marvel. Not Marvel. What's the other one? What's like Tom Cruise's Marvel? Manifest Destiny? No. Mr. Impossible? <laughs> yes. We watched that movie and there were so many long, intense scenes. And I was like, get there or don't. I fucking can't take this anymore, man. I like character development. I don't need to see things explode. Anyway. So Simu Liu is actually quite smart in this book because he's only 34 years old at present. And I think he was 32 when he wrote this. And you may be saying, a 32-year-old, isn't that a bit young to write a book? He's no older than Caroline Calloway. But you know who wasn't too young to write a book? 
his parents who are older than him. So actually, half of this book is about the lives of his parents, which I want to give full credit where credit is due. Incredible stuff. I love that he sat down and recognized my life story is actually not that long. We need to bulk this thing up with somebody who's lived lives. And he's like, who's lived lived? My parents who have been through a literal revolution. And his parents do have a really interesting story that does pave directly into his story, of course. His life is very informed by the life his parents led in a way that he decided to get 70 pages out of. Brava. I'd rather that than having somebody do acrostics. Well, especially because his parents' life actually was interesting. Because I will say, I think we've talked a lot of shit about a very similar structure in previous books. But what we've read previously is like a boring life story. Well, it seems like he had a childhood friend interview them both. And then the childhood friend actually wrote a biography of two interesting people. Yeah. And in that sense, it was very interesting. Normally, when we see people get into like the great grandparents, is very much means to the end of and that's how I got here. Whereas this very much was like an inside look at their childhood, their teenage years. And they did live during an interesting time during and then after the Cultural Revolution in China. And so to learn about the Chinese history of that time period through them was quite interesting. Yeah, it made me a lot more interested in learning about it because there are also a lot of moments in this book that reference the way that we have been educated about China. Yeah. So the prologue starts with the call that would forever alter the course of my life came out on a hot July afternoon in Toronto. Toronto. We learned that when we were actually in Toronto. Hot July afternoon in Toronto. I've felt it. I've lived it, baby. What's it like to be a performer there on the art scene? Oh boy, do we know. It was hard for us to get paid. <laughs> As I was lounging around in my underwear, eating a bag of Nongshim shrimp crackers. Okay, later in this book, when we catch up to this moment in time when he gets that phone call, he's like doing two full-time jobs, working his ass off, so busy. He's like making it seem like he was so busy, he never had a moment to spare. And suddenly he's in his undies, sparing moments. Anyways, he gets the call. He finds out he got the Marvel job. He calls his parents and they're like, okay, that's good. And his friend is filming it because he's like, we want their reaction on camera. Meanwhile, he kind of knows that they'll have a tepid reaction because they don't really understand the importance of Marvel in the U.S. culture. And then at the end, his friend keeps being like, say I love you to them. Say I love you to them. Almost as a joke, like putting them on the spot to make them look bad. And of course, he says, I love you. And then they go, thank you for letting us know. Yep. Bye. And then the call ends. There's some real foreshadowing in this chapter of how contentious their relationship is. And to me, it's not when his parents won't say I love you to him. To me, it's when he keeps on making fun of his mom for not wanting to be known as old. <laughs> anyway, so then he goes on to saying, like, why did I write this book? Being here and making history with this movie that we should have had a long time ago was a product of more than my own personal struggles. It was also the combination of everything my parents had fought for. Our stories are one and the same. Our destinies forever intertwined and defined by our sweat, our sacrifice, and our unyielding dedication to defying the odds and achieving the impossible. I will say what he went through and what they went through is quite different. Yeah. Have you ever worked the fields for years versus have you ever been not that cool in middle school? Have you ever worked the field for years because your parents have decided that you are the member of the family that is going to be sacrificed and forced to forego an education to do years of physical labor despite being an extremely promising student versus have you ever been not that cool in high school? But not even uncool, just like B-tiered. Yeah, to be like the least cool member of the cool group. That's hard. That is why I am writing this book. This is the story I want to tell. A story about our little family of three that crossed the ocean from China to North America in the relentless pursuit of a better life. 
A story about the obstacles that nearly tore us apart, whether it was a clash of cultures, a gap of generations, or simply our own stubbornness. A story about an imperfect family that made mistakes, often hurt one another, and nearly imploded on many occasions, but held on, survived, and even thrived. This book is for all of us. I was born 19th of April, 1989, in this Chinese Winterfell in Harbin, which is in northeast in China, a modest-sized city, to a working-class family that possessed neither money nor influence of any sort. So his name, Simu, comes from two different Chinese symbols. One of them means introspection or ideation, great. And then the other one means envy or a longing for something one doesn't have. I mean, boy, oh boy, does he have envy slash a longing for something he doesn't have. Talk about manifestation. He is like, that's a weird name to give someone. And I'm like, I'll agree with you. To name your child, like introspective jealousy is bizarre. It feels like you're creating a fuming, resentful child. Well, and they did. Congrats. You got what you wanted. But why would you want that? So it is customary to have an official name and then a name that your family calls you. And his family name was Mao Mao, which roughly translates to furry little caterpillar. A worm. Uh, He's one of us, guys. Are you listening? Simu? Do you listen often? Do you know what you're having for dinner tonight? If that question just sent you into a stress lurch, listen up. Hungry Root will fill your fridge with healthy food and simple recipes so that you can fill your schedule with stuff you enjoy doing way, way more. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you have. They'll keep your needs top of mind and start building your cart. They'll recommend groceries based on your taste. You can take their suggestion, or you can just choose anything you want. You get your pick of fresh produce, high-quality meat, seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks, sweets, and so much more. They even have seasonal fall favorites. I am so in love with Hungry Root. My delivery box comes and it's recipes that I just wouldn't have thought to make for myself, but I'm so happy to have. I recently am trying to become a pescatarian. I feel like I'm most of the way there, but the problem is sometimes I learn how to cook one or two things and then I just get stuck in an absolute rut. And Hungry Root is here to say, hey, we know you like these foods, but what if you tried them a slightly different way? It will make you happy. And do you know what? It does. Hungry Root goes beyond your weekly grocery haul with thousands of easy recipes that actually put your groceries to good use before they get forgotten in the back of your fridge. The best part is everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. Spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying healthy food you'll actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering our listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com worm to get 30% off your first delivery and free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know what we sent ya. So it's really interesting. He was born in Harbin. And then when he was very young, like months old, his dad left to pursue a higher education in America. And then his mom joined him less than a year later after he had already moved up to Canada. So his parents were living in Canada until he was four and a half years old. He was raised by his grandparents. And even at that time when his mother was in China, she was in Beijing with a job and she would come visit on weekends. But his full-time caretakers from almost the moment he was born were his grandparents. Yes. And so he does have a relationship from his parents that has honestly been fairly strained from the beginning because they were strangers. He remembers the first time he met his father. 
I'm sure my father was a little disappointed, but he respected my space, taking only a small step toward me. Do you know who I am? I pondered this for a moment. You, you are Zhenning Liu. Everyone around me bursts out laughing. The ice is broken and I laugh along, even though I don't get the joke. Zhenning Liu is exactly who this man is to me. Not dad, not father, not Baba, but a stranger and acquaintance at best. So then he spends the next five chapters taking you through his parents' life history, which is very interesting. First, he's like, I'm going to start with my dad. And he's like, this will, of course, upset my dear mother, whose hyper-competitiveness is matched only by her sons. I can already hear her now, reminding me that she was the one who had to carry me to term while I incubated in her belly for nine months, leeching off of her like a parasite, only to then exit her body in the most painful way imaginable. Then again, I feel like she would also be mad if I wrote about her first. I don't like all this attention. Why did you put me front and center right away? As you will discover later, my mother is a very difficult person to argue with. Yeah, so right off the bat, I was like, and how soon is this relationship going to go off the rails? This is why it's great to wait for things to be resolved until you write about them, because you can still feel the resentment in his voice about his parents. And I don't think it's undeserved. I mean, he gets into his childhood and it was abusive. So you get why he's pissed. But it's weird to write about it like you're on the other side of something that you very clearly are not. And that is how he's writing about it. Like, and now we're great. And now we've fixed things. And now we've moved on. And you're like, have you moved on? Because I feel like you might snap. I feel like you might snap because he has this way of writing where he'll have these little quips and these jokes and these pop culture references. And he writes about his parents with a similar tone sometimes. But instead of it being a funny little quip that either lands or doesn't, it is still simmering with anger. Like you can really feel the anger coming off of it, which again, I understand he had an abusive childhood. He has a very complicated relationship with his parents, but the things he says versus the tone they're presented with are opposite. My father was born in April of 1960 in the middle of a very tough time for all of China. After unifying the country and bringing about an era of peace, stability, and healthcare reform, Mao had hoped to reform the economy as well. This included the collectivization of agriculture and industrialization of rural communities across the country. So there was like a famine at this point. They couldn't meet the external demands and there was like not enough resources. So there was a lot of hunger at the time because they had a natural disaster and they just did not have the resources to feed the whole country. And then on top of that, there was like this huge attack on education and academics. So the decision that was made by Mao Zedong was to make it so that you had to go work in agriculture. Like everyone had to send at least one family member, I believe, to go work in the fields for years. They also got rid of this test that got you into college. So the only people that could pursue higher education were people that were already well-connected in these very specific ways. But there was no generalized path from commoner status to higher education. You just couldn't go to college, basically. Yes. He also points out that his aunt, his dad's sister, went through the same thing that he went through where she was raised until she was six years old by her grandparents. By the time she was reunited with the family, it was because his father had just been born. And so his father was the favorite. And they were like, well, if we're handling one, we can handle two. And I don't know what happened there, but it sounds like nothing good. It sounds like she carried the resentment of being the second favorite child or like the unloved child for the rest of her life. Yeah. And so then when they had to send a child to go work in the fields, the sister was like, yeah, me. I don't even like hanging out with these people. I'll go to the fields. His dad said it was kind of awesome, though, that education was deprioritized because he could skip class all the time. He said it was so fun. Meanwhile, the grandfather, his dad's dad, was an academic. So he was laying low because he did not want to be seen as like an elite and be penalized. So he was basically on a self-imposed house arrest. The dad was skipping school all the time as the kid. And then the sister felt unloved and was out in the fields working. Luckily, when the dad was 17 years old, they reinstated this college entrance exam. So Mao Zedong died and there was a new guy. Yeah. 
and they reinstated the college entrance exam. And then there was 10 years worth of people who had not taken it, who are now all being given this potential opportunity to take this test. If you do well on it, you get the opportunity to go to college. But because there are 10 years worth of people who are now all essentially like the level of seniors in high school, it was like the most competitive test that's ever happened. So his dad goes to high school one day and they do this random test for everybody that was unannounced. And it turns out it was like a prep test to see, are there any of these kids that will even potentially do well on this test? His dad scored one of the top eight in the whole school. And so he went into this expedited studies track where they took these eight kids and they plowed them with as much knowledge as they could because they were like, you're our only hope. We have to prep you as hard as we can. We got to get some of you into school. And his dad says it's the proudest moment of his life. And Simu being so fucking annoying, he goes, I was like a celebrity. He jokes wistfully. It was the proudest moment of my life. Prouder than when you found out your son was a literal superhero? Oh yeah, for sure. And the chapter ends there as if we're supposed to all be like, what an awful dad. How dare he be proud of his own accomplishments? First of all, Simu, you're not a literal superhero. You play a superhero. That is quite literally the opposite of a literal superhero. You are a <laughs> fictionalized superhero. You are a figuratively a superhero. Yeah. And it is impressive to be the lead in a Marvel movie. Okay. The odds are probably quite similar to being a commoner who passes this exam to the point of getting into college during this insane year. I would say actually lower. You think the superhero is lower odds or the test is lower odds? There's only like 30 Marvel superheroes, but like 300,000 people got to go to school that one year. I wonder if we could run the numbers. The Marvel Universe has so many people now, and I do feel like proportionately to the number of aspiring actors, I wonder if it's more or less than the aspiring test takers. I think he said 2.7 million people applied and only 4.5% were accepted. Okay, it's obviously different numbers, but I will say for his dad to like be proud of himself for this accomplishment is not crazy. Yeah, I feel like it's different prides. So he got to go to college and he got into electrical engineering. So now we get to the mom's story. The mom was two years older than the dad. So she was an extremely high achieving student. She was the eldest daughter. She was the oldest of three. And she says her whole life, she never remembers a time she wasn't tasked with taking care of somebody else. She was basically raising her younger kids. The gist seems to be like they were well-off people in the city, but during the redistribution of land and property and capital, they were kind of left worse off than they had been. And because they were in the city and things were so expensive, it was like more of a struggle. So even though her mom was like an architect and her dad was a scientist, they were pinching pennies. And she was like the poorest kid in her whole class. I'm like, I feel like everyone in that class was probably pretty poor. Anyway, so the mom is taking care of her siblings, also does very well in school. Is always the top of the class, no problem. And is known as just this like type A high achiever. And because she's the oldest, it comes time that one of the kids has to be sent out into the fields. So every family gets one exception. Yes. So you get to keep one kid home. So they are thinking about it. She has an opportunity to stay in and become a teacher in training. The teachers are like, you're such a good student that we will hire you as an assistant and give you an out from leaving the fields because they still need teachers for like the little kids. And then you can work your way up to becoming a school teacher and then you can stay home. She has this opportunity presented from her school, presented to her family, and her parents sit down alone and they deliberate and they come out and they tell her, you are not going to be our exception. You have to turn down this teaching position because your younger brother is a weak idiot who will not be able to handle the fields. And they're like, you're so independent. Could you do it instead? And they're like, but your choice, no problem. Yeah. And so of course, dutiful as ever, she takes it on and she goes out to the fields where she abandons being the valedictorian of her class to do manual labor. 
And of course there she becomes really fucking good at it. She's the top manual labor. Incredible at her job. But then two years in, it's announced that they're bringing back this test, that this whole system is going to change. And they're like, okay, the people in the fields, you guys can study for the test too. And most people in the fields are like, well, we've already been one to 10 years out of school. I don't remember fucking anything. And I've been doing manual labor for however many years. Studying for a test is an insane idea. Of course, none of the people in the fields are going to be able to do it. And they also have the opportunity to keep their jobs in the field. So just because the mandatory system has been taken out, if you have a job in the fields, that job is safe. So they're like, why would I subject myself to this? Most people say no, but not Simulia's mom. She studies her butt off. She works in the fields all day. She reads books all night. People ridicule her. They call her a nerd. There's like a Chinese metaphor that says like the frog who wants to swallow a swan. And they say, you are like a frog who wants to swallow a swan. It's an impossible dream. Give up, loser. But baby, she did not give up. And you bet your bum she passed that test. And she also becomes an electrical engineer. And would you believe they're in the same electrical engineering program? At Beijing Zhaotong University. So they go to university. They are actually kind of competitive with each other at first. The mom has quite a bit of resentment built up at the people who'd never had to go to the fields. And when she meets other students who just came straight from school, I mean, she's like, you don't even know. You don't understand anything. (laughs) And there is, you know, a lot of competition. There's a lot of studying. They're all working their butts off because These are not only just people who scored well on this test and are quite smart. They scored so well on this test compared to the millions of people who took this test. And it's people of all ages because of the 10 years that the program wasn't in place. So everyone is just insanely studious. There's no fraternizing. There's no duds. The fourth year, however, they kind of fall in love. They keep it a secret. And then once they graduate, they announce it. She gets a job at Beijing Locomotive and Rolling Stock Inc. I don't know if you know it. Do you know it? No, I don't. (laughs) And his dad decides to get a master's degree at Harbin Institute of Technology back in his hometown, nearly 2,000 kilometers away. So they exchange letters while they're long distance, and then they get married just kind of on the DL because then he's able to request a job in Beijing as well, and they're more likely to give him a job in Beijing because he's moving to be there with his wife. The decision to get married was a result of a combination of factors that pointed us in that direction. My dad would say later, yes, my mother agreed, a natural progression. That's very romantic. So at some point, they're working here. They're young. He's getting his master's. She's getting her money, I guess. She was traveling like three hours each way to go to this job. They were like dedicated to their fucking stuff. And they have a friend who gets accepted to a PhD program in Queen's University in Canada. And they're like, why not us? And the only thing holding them back is the TOEFL. The TOEFL is test of English as a foreign language. And it's notoriously very difficult. And only the people who score at the very top get to go. So he takes this test. He scores just under. He doesn't make the cutoff. And they agree that the husband would be the one that tries to make it because his English was better. But luckily, his job has some like year-long study program where they'll teach you English for a year so that then you can go get a master's in America or Canada and then come back and have more knowledge. So he does this for a year. And as he's learning English at the management school in Nanjing, he gets a letter from the mother saying... Jenning, I am pregnant. They end up actually losing that child. So Simu's question was, why were you trying to have a baby when everything was up in the air? You didn't even know what continent you were going to be living on in the next couple of years. And they just decided it would keep us bonded as a family, which I don't know if that's like that good of an answer. 
Anyway, so he gets born. His dad goes off. His mom is working a few hours away, coming to visit every weekend. And within the year, he calls for the mother. So basically, the way his dad is able to do it, he passes the TOEFL and he applies to schools in America. He gets into one in Arizona and then one into New Jersey. And at this point, Simu takes this weird shot at New Jersey where he's like, uh, he made the decision that anybody would make. He went to Arizona. And I'm like, okay, listen, no offense. No offense, but Arizona right now is in bad shape. I don't know if that's like the obvious better choice. I actually think he would have been happier in New Jersey. He was so unhappy in Arizona that after a year, he switches to Queensland. Yeah, in Canada. Where he was able to get a large enough stipend and scholarship that he could bring his wife over on a spousal visa. Because at Arizona, he didn't get any extra money. So he was working as like a food delivery person. He just couldn't afford to have her come over. So he goes up to Queensland where he gets a better deal. She goes over. She also applies for a PhD and they graduate together with their PhDs. And she had a much harder time with the TOEFL exam. His mom is a genius. Yeah. She flops it so hard. And then like three months later, comes in and nails it. And I'm just like, how do you learn English in three months? He does also a really beautiful job of painting a picture of the decision his parents made and how in so many places it felt like it could have been the wrong one. Mom could only smile and nod in that moment, the gravity of what she'd done. She'd left behind a successful career in Beijing during which she co-authored two books and several research papers to come to an entirely foreign place and start from scratch. So now that they're both established, they have PhDs, the mom actually gets a job first It takes the dad about a year to find work after he graduates from his program. So they come over and they pick up Simu. And he doesn't know who they are. I mean, this does sound really traumatic. So he's raised with his grandparents. He has cousins around. He has a lot of family nearby. He has a very comfortable life. Although, obviously, there was room to grow. That's why his parents went to America in the first place. His dad comes. He doesn't know this man. And they like come up with this plan so that there's not like tears and drama and stress where they're all going to like go to the bus with him and the dad and just like slowly peel off one by one. And eventually he just kind of wakes up from a nap and everyone he knows is gone. And he's just with this man who's technically his dad, who's going to take him to a country he's never been to. I fear that in an attempt to uphold the traditional Chinese values of stoicism, my family deprived us of a human moment. I wish we had held each other for an eternity as tears streamed down our cheeks, crystallizing the frozen air. I wish that I had kicked and screamed at my father, telling him I didn't want to go. I wish I had gotten the chance to say a proper goodbye, not only for me, but for Yeye and Nai Nai, so that they could have known the moment how much I loved them. As the train pulled out of the station, I looked out my window and watched as the life I knew vanished behind me. They stay in Beijing for a couple of days before his dad finally gets him on a plane to Canada. And he has a broken arm at that point. And they forget Simu's exit papers. And the immigration people are like, you know what? They're fine. Just let them go. That kid's broken. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want that one. (laughs) They fly to Toronto and he like doesn't even recognize his mom. My arrival in January was the culmination of all that they had strived for and marks the beginning of a bright new era in their lives. So he feels like there is this very significant moment of success. Like the family is reunited. We are all living in Canada. This is what it was all for. And then very quickly they become disillusioned to the idea. They're like, oh, raising a kid is hard and we're also still working so hard. It wasn't long before I stopped feeling like my parents happily ever after and more like their burden. He lives a fairly comfortable life, even when they were still having a hard time with money when he was young. If there was something he really wanted, he would get it. Like, it doesn't seem like they really had money, but he wanted a video game thing and he got a video game thing. My parents made the snap decision to buy a Sega Genesis the following week, again at full price. 
Anybody who grew up in an immigrant household will understand how big a deal that is. Despite growing up poor, I truly never felt like I was missing anything material in my life. What I did miss, and greatly so, was curling up between yaya and nai and feeling completely protected from all the bad in the world. As time went on, I felt like I ceased to be an endless burst of joy and became something that had to be molded or groomed for success. Around the time I was set to be in first grade, I started to feel the weight of my parents' expectations on my shoulder, something that I had never encountered before in China, where being my adorable self was enough. So now his parents have expectations of him. They expect that he's going to be an extraordinary kid, especially because, I mean, when you look at them, they are both so smart and so hardworking and so driven. So it starts with piano lessons. His parents have, you know, a neighbor and their daughter is in piano lessons. They say, well, Simu should be a great piano player. And obviously it results in tears. I relate to this situation wholeheartedly. I used to cry every day over the keys of a piano. (laughs) The fact that his piano teacher would scream at him for not practicing two hours a day, I say, been there, bitch. That's a lot for a little kid. And I would cry and cry and cry. And it would get like lower and lower and lower. I was not going to practice every day. I was busy. I had appointments. When was I going to listen to Britney Spears CDs? (laughs) After inspecting my work, which was sloppy and riddled with errors, she erupted at me. I asked you to memorize eight words. You've been sitting at your desk for an hour. If you're going to take all day to learn eight words, how will you do anything else? My mother's volume intensity stunned me. It was a completely different side of her than the woman who had scooped me up in her arms at the airport, hugging and kissing me and refusing to let me go. That day, because of those eight words I couldn't remember, my trust in my parents shattered. I no longer felt loved unconditionally and no longer felt that they could keep me safe. And so from here on out, it's just like story after story of his childhood as it got progressively worse. He remembers a time that his dad picked him up from a swimming pool day during camp and said, who was the fastest kid in school? Me, I fibbed innocently wanting to impress him, even though I knew I definitely wasn't the strongest swimmer. My dad was immediately skeptical. Okay, who was the second fastest? And he goes, Anthony, Mau Mau, are you sure? Then finally he admits he made it up. He said, that's fine as long as you told me. And then that night at dinner, his dad says to his mom, actually, Mau Mau told a lie today. He said he was the fastest in class, but he admitted that he made that up. I don't think that my mother heard the last part. She sprang into action immediately, silently and abruptly. Without any warning, she took my hand, marched me out of the apartment, closed the door in front of me, and locked the latch. It all happened so quickly, I barely even had time to blink or look at my father. I was seven when I was first identified as a gifted kid. So they bring someone in and test him, and he gets to be put in fast-track classes. My mother was tireless in her efforts to raise me, and often went above and beyond to ensure that I had everything she never did. This woman literally force-fed herself sardines every single day when she was pregnant with me because she had heard that they would make me smarter. But there was a definite dark side to her. And when her anger flared up, there was seemingly no limit to the hurtfulness of her words. I was often called stupid or useless and sometimes even slapped for my disobedience. The following day, she would carry on as if nothing had happened, leaving me alone to grapple with what she had done. I developed a genuine fear of her that would morph into resentment and even hatred in later years. I can't believe sardines were big then. They're having such a comeback. Have you seen it on TikTok? I feel like that sounds like 30 years is about exactly the cycle of sardines. (laughs) <laughs> and he says in their family like mediocrity just wasn't an option his family not only was obviously so bright and so smart and so gifted they came over here and they knew they had to work three times as hard as a white canadian to get as far so they were just like killing themselves every day 25 years later my dad still refuses to complain nobody forced us to come here he says we made a choice to immigrate we knew that nothing was going to be handed to us we knew that we were going to have to work twice as hard as everyone else with his parents' hard work, there was the same expectation on him to work just as hard and to have just the same drive to be great. I wasn't supposed to actually enjoy anything. I wasn't supposed to actually enjoy piano. My only job was to surpass Cheryl and be the best. I was often made bad for wanting things to have things that regular human children did, like hobbies or friends. 
So his parents were just constantly putting him in extracurriculars, in further learning, because it was important to them that he be the best, that he be on par or above every single other kid of every other person they knew. And making plans, just having a fun time was a complete waste of time to them. So he was so behind socially because he was never allowed to simply chill. And I think he went along with it until puberty. My priorities shifted as my voice deepened and my equipment dropped. More than I wanted to be a genius or even make my parents proud, I now wanted to be cool. I always dreamed of being popular, like a class comedian or a star athlete who is universally admired. It is such a theme in this book that all he ever truly wanted was for people to say, that guy is handsome and cool. And he achieved it. It's so inspiring. People always talk about how handsome and fun he seems. He's Ken. You guys know that I have been trying to get super healthy for my wedding. I've been working out and I've also been trying to not just eat cupcakes and cereal for every meal. I'm addicted to a sweet treat in the afternoon, maybe before we record, maybe after we record. And I have been instead eating chomps. I am obsessed with chomps. Every afternoon I have one when like that 4 p.m. hunger hits when we're in the studio. And I think I deserve just a little treat for showing up. I have a chomp stick instead. They're super high in protein, low carb, keto friendly. And it is like just an excellent little snack to curb your appetite, give you a little bit of energy and keep you going. I've been eating the turkey ones, but I've got veal on deck for tomorrow. I brought the taco flavored ones home for Mac. I feel like boys would love this stuff, but they've just been helpful. I've been upping my workouts a lot. I've been trying to get a lot of steps in and I'm really watching my macros and I've been truly obsessed with chomps. They're just the perfect little way to get your protein in every day. The one I'm obsessed with is the turkey one. It's like 60 calories, but with 10 grams of protein. You can't go wrong. I have that with some water, maybe a Diet Coke. Chomsticks come in nine flavors, so there's something for everyone. Or grab a variety pack to satisfy your whole family's taste buds. Chomps are great on their own or pair them with everything from fruit to hummus to crackers and more. I like to have them with a little cheese. So it's kind of like I'm having a charcuterie board, but with health in mind. A little afternoon easy peasy charcuterie board. Right now, Chomps is offering our listeners 20% off your first order and free shipping when you go to chomps.com slash worm. That's an incredible offer. So go to chomps.com slash worm for 20% off your first order and free shipping. That's C-H-O-M-P-S dot com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know that we sent you. Around middle school age, he starts wanting to be more popular. He's doing everything that was cool back then. The NSYNC, Backstreet Boys days. He frosts his tips, which was a thing that men were doing. And then men, I mean, 11-year-old boys were doing back then. <laughs> I think some men. Guy Fieri still does it. Yeah, but he does it in an anarchist way. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Obviously, my parents were not down with my newfound rebelliousness. Look at everything we've invested in you, they spat. You're a spoiled brat who's squandering all of our efforts and money and wasting time on useless things. You're nothing but a loser. Fuck you. I don't want any of it. Wap. I can't pinpoint exactly when my parents graduated from spanking to full-on hitting, but I remember that this one particular argument ended with a slap to the face. My cheeks stunk from where it had been struck, and I felt my eyes well up immediately. I was spoiled simply by the virtue of having access to running water, but I couldn't help that I grew up in Canada or that my problems were different from theirs. I didn't come to Canada by choice and I would have been just as happy growing up in Harbin with my grandparents. Because I was in Canada, though, I was constantly surrounded by images of what a family ought to be and mine wasn't it. So when he is around 12 years old, both of his parents have really good jobs at this point. They're full-time working engineers and we found ourselves suddenly catapulted into the upper middle class. So he is spoiled. He has everything he wants, except his parents don't have everything they want. And what they want is a kid who cares more about school. They get him into this specialty school called UTS, which stands for University of Toronto Schools. And it's like an inner city private school that's super selective. 
and it's half an hour away, but he loves it. It's grade seven through 12, but he loves it because it means he has to take the train in and out by himself, which gives him all of this freedom from 7.15 a.m. till 7.15 at night. Plus it gives him some pocket money because obviously he needs cash if he's going to be just taking the train in and out of Toronto. So the thing is, he is really naturally smart. He is just like a gifted kid. School came easy to him. And on top of that, his parents were like grinding him every night, fast tracking all of his math. Like he would go home and his parents would teach him next year's math. So school was a breeze. But then he got into this school where he said 70% of the kids were also Asian and also come from similar backgrounds. And now he was up against a bunch of himself and he did not have the work ethic to keep it going. Yes. And none of his work ethic was internal. It was all externally motivated. His only motivation was making the external motivation, his parents, happy. And so when he was left to his own devices, shit went off the rails. And they were pissed because now they're paying $10,000 a year in tuition. And he, meanwhile, wants to be a boy band. So him and a couple of the other kids start a boy band. And that's what he's obsessed with. If my parents were anxious about my shenanigans at the start of the year, my first report card would send them into a red hot fury. A lackadaisical effort in class culminated in an 82.6 average, an A minus buoyed by a high grade in gym and low ones in French and history. Even my math grade, which up to that point was reliable, was neither here nor there. Can I just say, I can't believe an 82.6 is an A minus. It's like Canada math, their metric. Okay, because to me, that's a B minus. But that's, you're in the United States. Interesting. Lacking any sort of real skills with the ladies, I resorted to attention-seeking behavior, including but not limited to acting loud and obnoxious whenever they were around, referring to myself as hot and sexy in what I suppose was an attempt to corner the market on those words and doing anything I could to elevate myself to any sort of celebrity status within the school. So he is, by his own admission, an absolute fucking tryhard for years to come. Well, trying hard at everything but school. And his parents are just going off the fucking rails at him at home. They're screaming at him constantly. They're beating him constantly. Never did they really sit me down and ask me how I was doing. Never did they make me feel I was respected as an individual, not as a thing they were merely obligated to feed and clothe, but as a person with his own lens of the world. Never did they tell me they loved me or that they were proud of me. In my parents' mind, they had already gone far beyond what any parent was expected to do for their child. Perhaps they felt no additional obligation to be compassionate or patient. They were like a couple of Pavlovian machines, hardwired to respond to basic information. If Simu was doing work, yes, then do nothing. No, then get angry. Did Simu practice piano? Yes, then do nothing. No, then berate Simu until practice. I think this book is overall quite introspective and he does take responsibility and he does share a lot of really vulnerable stuff. But one thing he talks about is he's just girl crazy. He's obsessed with trying to find a girlfriend and he's always messengering girls when he should be doing homework. And he says, looking back, it's easy to see that I was just looking for the love and intimacy I wasn't getting at home. No, you were a horny teenager. Yeah, that supersedes loving parents. He tells all these crazy stories about the times his parents would get mad at him. And one of them is he had this girlfriend who went to a different school. So he goes to school dance. And when his dad picks him up, he's like, who'd you take? And he says who he took. And he goes, what's her rank in the class? And he goes, I don't know. She doesn't go here. And then his dad freaks out and like beats the shit out of him for dating a girl who doesn't go to his school. Yeah. She could be smart, but at a different school. No, she can't. He goes to the smart school. I wept silently in my bed that night, grieving for the last vestiges of the little carefree child who once looked up to his parents in wonderment and admiration. Although our time in Canada had not been perfect, I still held on to the many happy memories of my early years. I would not let the enemy into my life. It would just give them an opportunity to exploit my vulnerabilities. I would not show weakness. My tears would just make them think that they had power over me. I would not fear pain. If I got beaten, I would hold my head high and show them that they could not break me. So he keeps going to school. His grades stay pretty mediocre and things between him and his parents get more and more contentious and he just gets more and more hardened towards them. This high school he's at, they call it the doctor factory because the kids go from that school to 
U.S. Ivy League institutions for the most part. A lot of kids go to Harvard. Dartmouth is the last resort from this school. And he is not going to get into one of those schools. And he says he tries to be sympathetic to the fact that he knows his parents really struggled to make the money and to spend all that money on somebody who wasn't trying hard was really hard. And he says, as sympathetic as I am to all of this now, though, I also know that it doesn't change how deeply and profoundly I've been affected by their abuse. My parents have come a long way since the events of this chapter, and we all look back on this time with complicated feelings of guilt and remorse. Our hope is that families like ours will read our story and understand where we went wrong so that they can make a different choice, a choice to listen and to be kinder. The story that made me feel really sad is when he was trying to be a little pop star boy. He wrote a song called Celebrity about how hard it is to be a celebrity. He's like, my mom would be abusive and yell at me and hit me, but my dad snuck into everything I did and then would mock me quietly. And then one time he found these lyrics and he goes, I read your little songs you wrote. He sneered at me. Ooh, look at me. I'm a celebrity. It's the saddest thing I've ever read. That's so mean. And then like whenever Simu would cry, he'd be like, oh, you're crying. You think you owe my little baby? And he would like mock him for crying. My poor little child. So the thing is, he has no motivation in most things in school. But one area where he does genuinely excel naturally is in writing and creative pursuits. Like he is smart and creative and great with words. And so after some testing, they zero in and they say, you know, he could really excel in business and economics because he's just not going to get into doctor school. So he kind of pivots and says, I think I can still make my parents proud by being the best business major anyone's ever seen. And that is still a very respectable career because you can make a lot of money from businesses. Is there money in business? I think some businesses. So he decides to try to get into business school and he ends up getting into the top business school in Canada. Kind of by virtue, I think, of going to the fancy high school. Yeah. His senior year, he's able to really like build a course load out that's pretty easy so he can get his grade point average up. And then I think he's a real smooth talker and is able to interview well and write good essays. And they're like, all right, get in here, kid. He also develops a passion for tricking. That sounds like he's a sex worker. Nope. Doing tricks. The tricking community of movement-based art form that borrowed from martial arts, gymnastics, breakdancing, and parkour. He tells a story about how there's three boys in his grade that are the most popular boys. And one of them knows how to do backflips. And so Simu goes, I'd love to learn to do a backflip. And the guy goes, I'll teach you. I'll help you every day till you master it. And then he really does. And I thought, wow, Simu, if any story about an underage boy were to get me sent to fucking jail, this is the one. A boy (laughs) with the talent and patience to just not only do backflips, bestow the knowledge on you no matter how long it takes. (laughs) That to me, listen. (laughs) Claire. You know I love a backflip. I know you love a backflip. Remember when that seven-year-old taught me how to do a backflip on a trampoline? Yeah, that was your best friend. I was like, I wish you were my son. I feel like that person still ranks above me in friendship. No, can I say the reason you're still number one is because he taught me it on a trampoline, which feels easy peasy, lemon squeezy. But if he had taken me to the hard ground and said, and now I'll teach you on ground, we wouldn't even still be speaking. I'd have a podcast with that guy where he would just do backflips every day and I would describe them. Wouldn't be great for the medium specifically, but... You only know what you know. Anyway, so he graduates high school. His parents are honestly humiliated that he only gets one scholarship. They were so embarrassed that they left in the middle of graduation. They were like, we're so ashamed of you that we're not going to celebrate this. But then he goes to college and in the beginning, fucking thrives. So one of the things that they do in the intro week of college is there's this thing called Super Frosh. And it is a competition where anyone can display a talent and then win an award Everyone competes. There's like a big talent show and anyone can go in. And so he's like watching people have these shitty talents and he just stands up out of his seat. So he goes down onto the floor and does a round off into a back handspring. 
The whole crowd goes wild. Everyone's like, well, that's a finalist right there. Usually like the groups have two finalists per group, but his group was like, we're putting it all on Simu. And so he goes up there and for the first round, he does more tricks. But for the second round, instead of just doing tricks, he does an acapella version of This I Promise You by NSYNC and he wins. And for like the whole first semester of college, he's a celebrity. Everything he's ever wanted. I have such Canadian values. I know. I can't believe there was a whole school that said, you can do a backflip. You're our king. Because <laughs> I'm falling in line, baby. I want to go to the doctor and I want the most popular boy in school to be able to do a backflip. Where is that country? Canada. I'm going. <laughs> the thing with school is that doing backflips and getting popular was like easier than high school. But he has to like go to class. And that is really hard. He's in so many clubs. He makes so many friends. And the problem is he had gone to this really rigorous high school. So he felt above it. He's like, I can kind of catch up at the end. And of course, catching up at the end catches up with him. Yeah. This is also a rigorous school. It's also a rigorous program. And he now gets quite crafty. He becomes very good at like getting terrible grades. And then at the last second, pulling out of the stops and like heightening his average a bit. But one time he is just not able to. And it's literally the GPA he needs to be able to continue as a business major. Yeah, he gets a 55 in his business class, which to me seems like a big fat F, but I guess metric system again. But whatever it was, it wasn't good enough to stay a business major. Yeah. And then he writes this letter about like twisting his ankle and not being able to go to class. And they let him stay in the major, but he is kind of fucked. He's not able to get an internship because his grades are so bad. But he is an Abercrombie model, so that's like a pretty big deal. And by Abercrombie model, I mean employee at an Abercrombie store. Yeah, he's like, I wanted to be an Abercrombie model. So what I did is I went to a Hollister and I got a job there. Even though they wouldn't scout me, I specifically interviewed and then they hired me. And then I was able to use that to leverage to become an Abercrombie employee. That reminded me of, did you know I was a Hollister employee? Oh, you did tell me that you went there like once. Yeah, I was hired and I never went back because the day of my first shift, there was a Degrassi marathon on and I was like, I actually think it's a better use of my time to watch this because I was making so little money and it was so few hours that once you added up the transportation to get there and back and then the fact that you had to like buy their clothes. I was like, I don't know that I'll ever break even this summer going to this stupid job. What I do remember is that summer they had just opened a flagship store in New York City on like Pier 48 or something. So even though we were in Jersey City, New Jersey in the Newport Mall, we were instructed that every time someone walked into the store, you'd have to say... Hey, what's up? Welcome to the pier. Should we start the podcast that way from now on? I'm Claire. And I'm Ashley. Hey, hey what's, what's up? up? Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the pier. pier. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it because it sets a tone and it's not necessarily our tone, but it's like a tone. <laughs> it's someone's tone. And it's a tone that was so successful 15 years ago and may have a time that comes back. It's a tone I can still smell. It's a tone that I like can't see because it's so dark in here. <laughs> okay. So... Like I said, he got such bad grades, he can't get an internship. But he's so good at interviewing that he almost gets an internship. <laughs> and they email him. They're like, listen, buddy, we would have loved to hire you, but your grades are like truly abysmal. Yeah. And so then he ends up getting an internship in marketing for a bread company. And he's like, listen, I actually respected the hell out of that bread company. Did you know some bread's for girls and some bread's for boys? Well, that's actually not true. But we marketed it so that girls like some bread and boys like some other bread. I believe that. Dave's killer bread as a real pick-me bread. Girl's bread. And he gets it by going to a different school's career day. He has tenacity. He has the Chris Jenner motto of, if you're hearing a no, you're talking to the wrong person. So like, if you're not getting a job, you're at the wrong school's career day. Okay, so Delight, Deloitte. 
Yes, Deloitte. That's so funny because Delight was the convenience store my family used as a real grocery store growing up. <laughs> Delight Market. We used to get a bottle of wine from them every year for being such good patrons. So he, like I said, did not get the internship with Deloitte because his grades were so bad. But then he snuck into this other career fair and he gets this internship with marketing. He also talks about a bunch of the MLMs that were presenting at this career fair and mentions Vector Marketing, which I interviewed at. Okay, so I went to the interview and I remember distinctly, first of all, I didn't know it was the knives. I thought it was a real job. <laughs> You're like, Vector, that's gotta be like an agency. I'm Did you ever watch Better Off Ted? Yes, it feels very Better Off Ted. Viridian Dynamics, 100%. Anyway, so I remember going and it was a group interview it was like just like some business major of a man up there in like his dad's fucking funeral suit talking to the room and like making specific eye contact with each person as he went around the room. You get a knife and you get a knife. Like in a class, they were like, when you're presenting, you need to make sure you have four seconds of eye contact with every single person in the room. And I remember watching him go around and being like, well, this isn't a real job. <laughs> At the end of the interview, they like offered me the job. But then I said no, and I went to work at Max and Benny's Restaurant Bakery in Delhi instead. Of course they offered you the job. The job was actually to pay them. Right. Anyway, so he gets a job doing bread marketing, and he loves it. Marketing is creative and fun. After his bread summer, he goes back to school. Back at school, he works really hard to get his grades up, and then he ends up getting a job at Delight. Deloitte. <laughs> As an accountant, because also the other thing is his grades were so bad. The lower grade people can become accountants. The medium grade people do some money stuff. And then the top grade people are like the biggest money stuff. They're investment bankers. Yeah. And his parents didn't know the difference really. So they like, were very happy, even though apparently the accountants make the least money out of everybody. He's like pretty mean about accounting. The problem is, I do think accounting is a very specific job for very specific people. And the people that I know who are good accountants are... My dad, my friend KJ, they're very happy with accounting and they're so good at it. And it makes me so happy to see them happy, but they are attention to detail fucking people. You know who would be so bad at accounting? Me. Us. <laughs> it's because whenever we try to even just like put our numbers in a spreadsheet to give to my dad to do all the work. It's so hard. Anyway, I was going to say all respect to the accountants I know. I'm so impressed with all you guys do. Simu thinks you're like idiots with no future. He's really disparaging, but I do relate to his inability to sit down and do accounting. He says he fell asleep in a meeting once. Not even a meeting where someone was like walking him <laughs> through how to do it. He like fell asleep while talking to her. And I am like hard relate. I know what it's like to have a job and be like, when I give it my best shot, I'm still so bad at this. That was me as an admin. I could not figure out time zones. I could not look at a number on a ticket and put it in its corresponding place in a calendar. My brain doesn't work like that. Anyway, so Simu's a bad accountant. He's supposed to take this test that allows you to be a superior accountant. And he fails. I think only 10% of people fail. So that's like pretty bad. Yeah, he did a really bad job. He just didn't study at all. And they gave him three weeks off to only study. And he spent those three weeks not studying. Oh, I forgot to say. Okay, so backing it up really quick. So when he was a bread intern, he got to go to a commercial shoot for the bread company. And there he was talking to a commercial actress. And he was like, wait a second. There are actors and actresses who aren't famous movie stars. They just like make enough money to live being in bread commercials. He's like, I would have been miserable doing that, but it's better than nothing. Now he's working at the accounting company. He fails his test and he's going to have to retake it. 
he takes a whole week off work because he has like got this inkling in his mind about acting. And he looks on Craigslist and they are hiring extras for a movie. And he makes his friend go. He's like, we have to be extras in this movie. It turns out to be the Pacific Rim. And we did not take a week off work. He just didn't go to work. He just didn't go. And they were like, where were you? And he was like, oh, sorry. I don't know where. And this was before the pandemic. I imagine they thought he was at his desk and he just wasn't. Yeah. After a day, he gets called in and they're like, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, oh, never mind. Sorry. So he doesn't get to go back for the full shoot. And his friend gets like his face on camera and he's so jealous about what could have happened if he was in the Pacific Rim that day. So he takes a couple of weeks off to study for the exam again because you get a second chance, but it's unpaid time off. The day before he's about to take this time off, he gets called in the office and he's like, Ugh, they're going to wish me luck. And guess what? They wish him adieu. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously shares a bank account with his parents. That's very standard in Chinese families that they all share money. And his dad's like, why'd you just get like this huge lump sum of money? And he's like, bonus. I don't know. He said, they paid me for the time that I'm taking off to study. How cool. And his dad's like, thank God, I thought you were fired. And Simu's like, I would never make you absolutely jump off a bridge like that. And so then he's got this acting bug. I had nothing left to lose. I could finally start making choices for me and owning them. And within like a couple of weeks, he's booking shit left and right. He has like a really good first run at acting. Yeah, he just like finds these agents on Craigslist, signs up, and he gets a commercial shoot like as a model. He gets in a commercial and then he gets something else. He gets like an indie film. Yeah, he's working and making like enough to get by for a bit. He's in Bike Cop Begins. Which unfortunately looks back and he senses it was actually quite racist, the character he was asked to portray. But at the time, he was stoked to have the gig. I said yes to everything so long as there was a camera being pointed in my general direction. It was the first time I had truly been honest with myself about what I wanted and it felt good. He goes to get an agent and he feels like Vinny Chase from Entourage. He's so proud of himself. He made like $10,000 in his first couple months acting, which is like a really big amount of money for early on acting. Yeah, he also lives in this condo that his parents bought him across the street from Deloitte. Yeah, that was premature. So he's scouring Craigslist every single day. He technically has agents, but I mean, whatever. <laughs> As time went on, my attempts to hide my career from my parents were growing increasingly more futile. They're seeing him in commercials. People are seeing him in commercials and being like, what's up with that? And he's like, it's like an accounting thing. And eventually he has to tell his parents that he was fired. It doesn't go over well. Okay, one of the other things that he does is he's pretty disparaging of all real jobs. He says, not everyone is ready to be unplugged from the matrix. I don't think I was either until my life hit rock bottom after getting laid off. I will say, as two people who have put a lot into pursuing a creative career, I don't think that I was in the matrix beforehand. And I don't think that you have to subject yourself to the anxiety and the struggles of inconsistent work in order to lead a fulfilled life. He also shouts out to an ex-girlfriend he had who was an actress. And he's like, yeah, she's still out there fighting the good fight. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. Zeno. I think it's like very valid to just have a steady job and like try to make a life you care about otherwise. <laughs> so he's pounding the pavement. He is methodical about scouring Craigslist for work. It's not like, oh, he decided to become an actor and then he would just like sleep in until his agents called him for an audition. Every single day he would wake up and like, peruse Craigslist and every website that had potential opportunities on it. And he was working at it so hard. He got headshots done. He started taking acting classes. Like he was throwing everything he had at this. 
he was creating his own stuff. He was directing and shooting and writing his own shorts. I think he has this confidence that doesn't hold him back because he was like, I wanted to write a short. So I went home and that night wrote the script. I was like, whoa, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, it really is one of those things where you like see his business school acumen and his years of rigorous academics applied to acting. (laughs) I mean, his parents are humiliated and horrified, but he's working so hard. He starts taking acting class. He gets better at acting and he's able to sort of start competing with the other two big Asian actors in town. There's only two, but there's really not that many roles otherwise. So he's coming along. He starts doing fringe festival plays. Bit by bit, he's like throwing himself at everything and people are taking notice. And he gets first cast in something called Blood and Water, which is like this Canadian paid for drama that's supposed to appeal to Asian immigrants, but it's done 50% in Chinese. Yeah, he says it was overall a overly ambitious project, especially compared to the budget. He said it. he felt like it was frustrating because it was clearly this ploy for diversity of, oh, look at this show we promoted. But then they didn't put any money behind the marketing, so it got lost in the ratings. And it's like, how can you expect this to do well if it's not given a chance? But it seems like it was given a second season because he kind of acts like he's like, yeah, of course, after the first season, I wasn't able to go back. But it turns out his character was killed off and there was a second season and he wrote on it. Yeah, they brought him back as a writer, which is really nice of them. He also gets a bunch of little bit roles on shows that shot in Canada. He was in Nikita for any of my other CW hoes. Did you ever see that show? Of course not. (laughs) He was in Beauty and the Beast. He's in a play written by the guy who wrote Kim's Convenience, which started as a play. And he gets the main character of Kim's Convenience. Yeah, he auditions for it. He goes to several auditions and it starts getting pretty promising. And he loves the guy who's making the show. So he'd also started going to L.A. every now and again because he's like, I know that the ceiling in Toronto is too low. So he gets a manager in L.A. who he's like, I don't even know if this guy is just like a guy in a coffee shop or if I have a manager. But he ends up getting cast on the show Taken in Los Angeles which was a TV version of the movie Taken and Taken 2. I will say he correctly is like, these idiot lazy executives are just like, well, why develop something new when something already exists? Yeah. Like, what if we took these movies you loved and remove all the stars and just had the same title? So he gets Taken, the show, and Kim's Convenience. And so now all of a sudden he's in two TV shows, which is huge. They're both shooting in Toronto, which makes it a lot easier. So then he's shooting two TV shows, which is an impossible schedule, but he manages it. So basically, when he's in Kim's Convenience, it gets picked up. It becomes this huge Netflix deal. They become known globally. And somebody's like, you have to get to L.A. Not someone. Gaius Charles. I don't really know who that is. He was in Friday Night Lights and Grey's Anatomy and my old roommate Marissa's church group. That's why I didn't know him. (laughs) I saw his name and I was like, oh, a great guy. Anyway, they're like, you have to get to L.A. Now's our chance. Our being like people of color, he's like, you got to get out there. It's about to pop off. And so he goes and he gets the O-1 visa, which means that you're an alien of extraordinary talent. But it turns out it's not that easy and that there's a lot of prejudice against the O-1 visa and he'll get cast for all these things. But then they cut him last minute because they're like, we need to hire locally or we don't want to deal with this visa problem. Or he's already pre-assigned to Kim's Convenience. So he like gets hired for this HBO show, but they're like, we don't want to operate around their schedule. And even though the schedules are completely different months of the year, What if something gets postponed? We don't want to deal with anybody who's promised to another area. I will say, though, in this couple years of auditioning hell he was in, I think that this is the best auditioning advice we've ever seen in a memoir, what he gives here. Hit it. 
we always hear in memoirs, you have to love the auditioning process. Like if you want to be an actor, most of it is auditioning until you finally hit it big, if you ever hit it big. And you have to learn to love the process. But I think this is such good auditioning advice. He says, the most important piece of mental clarity I gained was to not treat an audition room as a place of judgment, but rather a collaboration and play. And I think that that is so interesting because he says from making his own projects, he realized you're not always looking for just the best actor. It has to fit in a specific way. So when you're auditioning, you're not auditioning for like, do they like me? Yes or no. You're auditioning for like, do I fit in this collaborative environment? So collaborate and see if you do. Yeah, like you can't go in with your own predisposed idea of who this character is. Like you can, but you have to work authentically off of the actor who's reading to you. Yeah, I think it would take a lot of pressure off to be like, okay, I'm not in front of a panel of judges who are going to say yes or no. I'm trying to see if I like work well in this environment. And then if I do, do I look right for the part? Do I act right? Like there's so many levels to it. And he says when he got a request to do a scene again with notes and adjustments, I would take it as an opportunity to show more of my range rather than as a criticism of my acting skill. That's true. They're not necessarily criticizing you. They've already written this character. They know how they wanted to act. They're giving you notes. Use those as an opportunity. So he's doing these two shows for a couple months, which is insane. And then he starts going to LA quite regularly and not getting anything. It starts to grate on him. Finally, a project that he thinks he's a slam dunk for, Crazy Rich Asians, is being cast. And they tell him, you just don't have the it factor. Yeah, and that was like a punch to the gut after years of really just blindly believing in himself. And keep in mind, he's on Kim's Convenience this whole time, but he is starting to get quite anxious about what comes after Kim's Convenience. He's like, this can't go on forever. He's like, I know that if I don't get something while I'm on this show, then I'll be in a lull after. Yeah. So he's getting anxious and then being told he doesn't have it, it really fucks him up. And later he becomes friends with the director who's like, I never said that. But he's like, well, I have to include it in my book because the way that I felt afterwards was too painful to be left out of my life story. It reminded me of the Constance Wu situation where you can see why you'd grow resentful of your network television show because it holds you back from doing anything else. Yeah. Because if you're committed in contract, then nobody else really wants to deal with you because it means you're prioritized to that TV show and they have to work around that TV show. And clearly, most TV shows don't want to have to work around somebody else. Yeah. So in the meantime, every time he's going out to LA, he is networking his freaking ass off. So Ken Jong loved the show Kim's Convenience. Ken Jong from Dr. Ken from The Hangover. He loves the show. So he followed the whole cast on Twitter. And so he's like, that means I could DM him. And he does. And this, I will say, I think is so smart. He DMs him and says, I'm going to be in LA. Do you want to get a cup of coffee? And Ken is like, come to my set of my show. So he goes and hangs out with him. And through Ken Jeong, he meets so many other Asian actors. And he is so open and receptive and puts effort into getting to know these people that he develops a really intense and huge network of Asian actor friends. And he starts to discover the importance of inclusivity and seeing your life reflected on screen. And so he becomes this huge advocate for diversity on the screen. And he ends up being able to parlay it into this huge career in public speaking. Yeah. And through that, he's putting together basketball tournaments. He's going to colleges. He's talking. He becomes really good friends with Jeremy Lin, the basketball player. And they put on this huge basketball tournament. He like puts so much work into it. He calls on all of his connections. They raise a ton of money. It's a really big deal to him. And he's on a plane constantly. So he's finishing Kim's Convenience. He's acting in some other smaller projects. 
He's on planes every friggin' day going to do these public speaking engagements. He gets invited to speak at Harvard. And his mom is like, what the fuck? Why? (laughs) Why would they want you? But after the success of Black Panther, there's a lot of conversations around having more diversity in the superhero Marvel world. And so Simu as a joke, quote unquote joke, tweets that Marvel is like, I'm ready when you are. And of course, he gets brought in for a reading. He doesn't think it'll ever happen because he had already been called in for Mulan and passed over. And then they brought him back in. And sure enough, he got the role. And that's where the book ends. Yeah. Actually, the craziest thing is he sends in a tape. He gets called in for an in-person audition. And then they invite him for a screen test. And the screen test is the same day as his big charity basketball game with Jeremy Lin. And so he's like, could you do a different day? And they were like, yes, we could do the next day, which was a huge burst of balls, if you ask me. I mean, the book ends with him going in for his screen test. We know he got it because the movie's already out. And that's it. Now he's a successful Marvel actor. So in regards to his parents and how that all shook out. It's odd because he talks about how their relationship is better now. And he says when he was on this set of Blood and Water, because 50% of the script was in Mandarin and he couldn't read Mandarin, he would call them every night. And he has this kind of throwaway line of how that started rebuilding the bridges between them. Also, when he was in Kim's Convenience, it was such a huge hit in Canada that his parents would invite their friends over every single week. They bought a big new TV and everyone would watch the show and they were able to sort of be proud of him again because they were made fun of in their friend group for having the failed son. But he doesn't really walk through the steps of how they rebuilt it. Yeah. I wonder if they really did rebuild the relationship or if it just got better because he got more successful. Yeah. He says his dad would like lose sleep over his auditions and his parents got pretty involved and worked up and like how things were shaken out for him and excitement. I guess they have obviously accepted that he's an actor now. I have to give it to him. Of the people who wrote books before their times, he really figured out a way to do it. That was pretty good. I found the parts about his parents very interesting. He was no holds barred about his childhood and what it was like growing up with them and how hard it was. I don't know how they read this book and they talk about it. I mean, it's pretty brutal the way he describes it. And even the attempt he makes to understand where they're coming from, you're like, yeah, but it was still wrong. Yeah. It was still wrong to hit you and lock you out of the house and stuff. At one point in high school, he runs away for five days and it takes them five days to even call him and ask where he is. Yeah. So I get where he's coming from, but he tries to have all these little millennial jokes throughout that we kind of skipped, and they're pretty bad. The story itself is interesting. Anytime he shows his personality, you're like, "Mm, enough. Yeah. So he talks about how he had like really bad luck with girls, and he talks to this girl that he really loved in college, and he's like, what went wrong between us? And they're still friends. And she said, you tried too hard, and it was gross. It was so weird how like obsessed you were with putting on a facade. She's like, whenever you were in any room, you had to be the star of that room. And it was so uncomfortable that it made me uncomfortable. And he's like, ooh, that hurts. And I'm like, yeah, but in a way, feels like something that is still fizzling off. His dad at one point says you can't take criticism. I've heard one of the things people can't stand about Simu is that he's always like retweeting anyone who hates him and attacking them personally, which feels insane for a Marvel superhero. Yeah. I know that people don't like him. I didn't get anything like horrible in this book. I think part of the problem is that he was like rightfully upset about his childhood and we don't get much else. Yes. Like so little of this book actually focused on him and his relationships. And so much of it was about his childhood that it was hard to find fault in him because you're like, yeah, you were treated unfairly as a kid. But I think for the Patreon this week, we'll get into some of the queasier things he did because I know I have a lot of Asian friends that are like, not him. Why does it have to be him? Yeah, I guess to me, 
his story, aside from his childhood, like I will say the personality that we get from him feels to me like the honest personality that a lot of actors have. He does feel like he's being honest about how much he wants to be liked and like feel hot. And I'm like, I don't know. Could Channing Tatum be that different? Like none of it feels deeply offensive, but none of it feels like a good personality either. How fertile is the soil? I think three fertiles. I'd give it a full four stars out of five. Okay, what if you stripped off his parent story? Oh, three. Okay. But that story is in here, and I have to give him credit for it. But I will say how many warm teenies would I want to have with him? Zero. I would have one and a half warm teenies with him. I don't want to write him off. Can I say this book made me want to read like other biographies or memoirs of the Cultural Revolution of China. It made me genuinely interested in that part of history that I realized I don't know that much about. I don't actually care about his retelling of his parents' story. I care about his parents' story. And I like would read a well-written version of that story. I would love that. Me too. I was like, how random that those two people end up having a Marvel superhero. I guess anything can happen in America. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen that thing that Jack Black's mom wrote all the code to get the first rocket ship to the moon? And you're like, That is incredible. And then randomly, her son's Jack Black. What a factoid. (laughs) That's how I felt. All right, you little worms. I love you so fucking much. And who do you love the most, Ashley? I love uh, our five-star reviewing sweet wormy darlings. Thank you, Jenna Ariel. You are a beautiful mermaid with a beautiful review. Thank you, pretty concise individual. This review was concise and gorgeous. Thank you, Ayana8972. Ayana, give you a smooch on the cheek. Thank you, Talk Too Low. I am talking right into your ear, and I'm so glad that you say, hey, that chat is worth five stars. That is all for this week. I love you guys so much, and I will see you next week.